This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. In that 12-year period, how many failed attempts at writing a first novel did you have? There were a bunch. And then what would be your process of starting over? Like, would next day you have a brand new idea, or would you just start writing, or would you read more to get inspired? Uh, I wouldn't probably normally start every again. I'd wait until I felt like I had a book inside me. And once I, I felt like I had a book inside me, I'd start. That's what I still do. So this book came about about probably a year and a half, two years ago. Um, I was just depressed. I, I felt awful, and, and despite whatever success I had, and despite having a family I loved and friends I loved, I was just fucking depressed. I have this therapist who I have, a, I think, a pretty unconventional relationship with. I, I, I don't see him regularly. I call him when I feel like I need to talk to him, which sometimes is twice a month and sometimes once a year. Um, and the first time I saw him, I said, listen, I'm not here to talk to a fucking wall. Like, I expect this to be a conversation. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your opinion. And I want your advice. Um, and so I was depressed, and I called him. And I told him basically what I just told you. I wake up every day, and I want to fucking die. And he sort of laughed, and he said, well, I have a couple questions for you. I said, what? He goes, what? do you have your earrings in? And I don't know if you can see. I have six earrings, right? Um, and I was like, no, I don't. He's like, what kind of clothes are you wearing right now? And I said, oh, I'm wearing khakis and a Izod polo shirt. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm at my office. He said, the office where you write or the office where you run your company? And I was like, the office where I run my company. And he's like, and how's Connecticut? He's like, that big house yours, it's okay? I was like, yeah. He's like, the reason you want to fucking die is because you forgot who the fuck you are and you miss who you are. He said, go home and put your earrings back in and take off that polo and put on a t-shirt and stop going to the office of the company and go to the office where you write and write a fucking book. Um, he said, the version of you I knew would make fun of the version of you that exists today. Um, he said, you can run a business but still be yourself, right? He said, somewhere you got lost and you need to find yourself. And part of finding myself is writing a book. He said, you should be writing because it's what makes you happy. And he's right. Jay, you tell me when we're rolling. Yeah, I'm rolling. Okay, I'm gonna start. James, you, you up for it? And by the way, is there any anything you don't want to talk about? No, if I don't want to answer a question, I'll just... Tell you to fuck off. So, or... so I'm gonna ask about a million little pieces just because it's the elephant in the room, and this is obviously a prequel to it. By the way, excellent book. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Thank as you. As usual. So happy to have one of my favorite authors here, James Fry. By the way, I think forever. Am I pronouncing it right? Now? Forever, I was pronouncing it Frey. So you can pronounce it either way. Um, my grandfather was a French immigrant to America from Alsace. And in Alsace, it is pronounced Frey. But when he came to America, he moved to Chicago. And everybody there said Fry. 
but so without taking out the E? He just eventually gave up trying to correct them. Uh -huh. So I was raised with it as fry, even though we all knew it was supposed to be pronounced fray. So I don't really give a shit which way it's pronounced. Okay, well, I'm going to go back to James Frey then, because that's uh -huh. how I pronounce it like ever since A Million Little Pieces came out. So you're, I would say in my top, novels your your name and your books are always there like i loved all of your novels a million little pieces my friend leonard uh bright shiny morning and now you just came out with your latest book after a 10-year hiatus from this sort of book uh katarina just like a prequel to a million little pieces uh first off congratulations and thank happy you. birthday today thank you how old are you 49 49 you getting a little nervous about 50? Does it, do you feel it? I definitely feel it. I'm sore a lot. My body hurts. I'm tired. But I don't mind being old. I think I'm happier old than I was young. Why is that? Because you could see in your earlier books, right? There's a certain type of hunger that only happens when you're in your 20s, maybe your 30s. It starts to dissipate in yeah. the 40s. And do you feel that? Yeah, absolutely. I used to feel enormous rage my whole life. I, I was going to ask you about that because in Katarina, it's like the main character who's... So, actually, let's just reel back for a second. I mentioned before, Katarina, Katarina was like a sequel to A Million Little Pieces. A Million Little Pieces is one of the best novels ever written. Uh, it was scandalous when it came out because blah, blah, blah. I, I almost feel bad talking about this because I think it should be appreciated for what it is, which is a great piece of writing but it was initially marketed as a memoir. And like every memoir, it was possible to find pieces here and there that didn't exactly happen autobiographically. Oprah built you up as this inspiring, you know, kind of uh, alcohol to rehab to sober story. And then she tore you down uh, when it wasn't a thousand percent a memoir. And then she apologized later. <laughs> And along the way, you sold an extra 5 million copies or so. So I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing for your career, but you became somewhat notorious from it. I think it was a good thing. You know, I, I talk about in Katerina, uh, when I decided to be a writer, I wanted to be the most notorious writer in the world, right? I wanted to be a writer whose books uh, were divisive and polarizing and controversial, and I didn't know how I would get there. I always believed I would get there, and I can't say I expected to get there the way I did, but I think I did. And, and I think, if you don't mind my interrupting, I'm an occasional interrupter when I get curious, but I don't think there's another author since that has been as controversial as you. So, because, I mean, you... With with your writing, not only is the writing like extremely skillful and intense, which is why Oprah was attracted to it in the first place, but it does bring up the argument of you know what's fact, what's fiction, what's truth, what's what's novel, you know, in a memoir. Like you look at like let's let's just take any random example, Hemingway's A Movable Feast. That's like the he calls it a memoir. It's like the biggest piece of fiction he wrote. <laughs> Right. So there's there's no I don't believe any memoirs and yet somehow you got picked on for for like almost like out of a lottery. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't. I whatever happened happened. I don't really care. People always ask me about Oprah, and and my response it was is that it was an hour of my life. Right? Somebody yelled at me for an hour of my life. Um, that happened before I ever went on Oprah. It certainly happened since, and and so be it. Um, I wrote a book, and I wrote a book that was designed to break rules, to defy conventions to um, not be easily read, um, to not fit into places people wanted to put it. It's not, it is an addiction memoir and it's not at all, right? It is a memoir and it's not at all. It, it is a novel, but not at all. And, and when I think about art and books, I admire most the art and books that defy convention and break rules. If, if you look at one page of any book I've written, I don't use standard grammar. I don't use standard punctuation. I don't use paragraph indentations. I don't lay the words out on the page in any way that is not like anyone else. It's almost like your, your emotions mixed with your thoughts painted straight on the page as opposed to using any what, what you would call rules. Like this is like it's what you're feeling and and how your body is functioning is what you're writing. Yeah, I, I always say the only goal I have is to move you, right? To make you feel something. I don't care if you love what I do or hate what I do, as long as I make you go one way or the other, as long as I force you to have an opinion, to force you to have an, a, a position. Well, I, I, I wanted to ask you like stylistically in, in a million little pieces, and, and you do it also in, in all of your books, um, but million little pieces, it's kind of the, a good example of it where the story itself is almost told with in part with the structure of the writing. So in the beginning, when the main character is just entering the rehab and he's most um, non-sober, like he's most still an addict, the, the writing is more scrambled. It seems like it's more straight out of his head. It's more... Uh, uh, I don't know how to how to describe it. It's more chaotic. And then as he gets more and more sober, more more into what's happening around him, makes friends, falls in love, whatever, um, the writing becomes more that the style itself becomes more structured. And so it's almost again like the story is being told in the structure of the writing itself. Yeah, I think the structure, I, I always say the architecture of a book is important, right? If you think of a book as a building, um, the architecture has to be sound and it has to be it has to lend itself to the function of the building and to to the goal of what what the building is supposed to be um i don't write with outlines when i write a book i i just sit down and i start i write from beginning to end everything is sort of done by instinct and by feel and um I, I don't know how to say what I do, but I, I just, I'm not scared to do something that isn't normal, right? And often the things that aren't normal are the best things to do, at least for me. Um, like what's an example in a book you haven't written that you really appreciate as something not normal that you looked up to when you were building the craft? I mean, I, I reference Tropic of Cancer a lot, like the simple use of profanity, right? Um, it, it, it was a book that was published and was banned in every English-speaking country in the world because of its use of profanity. It was banned for 34 years. 
Um, I love that. There's a book by Baudelaire called Paris Spleen, um, which is, Baudelaire was primarily a poet and an art critic, and he wrote this one weird book called Paris Spleen, which are just little one, one paragraph to three page, he calls them prose poems. They're just musings on weird, dumb shit in Paris. Um, Is it, it reminds me also, uh, uh, some of your stuff, Celine, just the kind of like I, I frenetic love I love style. Celine. Yeah, I mean, I love I love Celine. It's brutal. It's visceral. It it's immediate. Um, it's propulsive. Um, you have to react to it. It forces your heart to go one way or the other. It forces you to look away or to not be able to look away. Um, and he also captures that rage again in this structure of the writing itself. Yeah, he's he was a great writer. I know when I started writing, I started trying to be a writer when I was 21, right? I moved, ran off to Paris to, to be a writer. A Million Little Pieces got published when I was 33. Uh, so it was 12 years. And all the way through that, I was trying to figure out how to sort of take things that I admired, like Baudelaire or... Um, Henry Miller or Jack Kerouac, just the speed and rhythm and, and lyricism of how Kerouac wrote and figure out how to let them influence me, but also write in a way that read as if it were devoid of influence, as if it was something that was so absolutely singular that it, it couldn't have come from anyone else. And, and it was so singular that it couldn't be copied without it being obvious that it was being done. You know, I, I wanted to write books that, that once people had read one thing I'd ever written, anytime again they encountered it, they knew without having to look at the name who wrote it. Um, a, a big part of my writing process is talking. Um, I think there's a rhythm to speech that is very different from the rhythm of writing, especially the rhythm of how we are taught to write. And so at some point in midway through that 12-year period of me trying to write a book, uh, I figured out that if I talked what I wanted to write and made sure it sounded right before I actually wrote it, that that was a better way than just writing. Even though there's a lot of uh, repetition in some of your books. There's uh, a lot of repetition in my speech. I say the same shit over and over again. Um, how many, in that 12 year period, how many failed attempts at writing a first novel did you have? There were a bunch. Because in Katerina you describe maybe three, two, something so like that. So I threw at least two reasonably large fragments of books into the Seine, right? I threw one into the river in Chicago. Um, I lit a couple on fire. Sometimes they'd be 30 pages long. The longest one was probably 200 pages. And how would you, how would you, let's say 200 pages, which maybe, I don't know, is half years worth of work or years, I don't know how long it was worth of work, but it's a lot. You're, you had dreams every page of, of writing that, that this could be it. And right. then you throw it away. How do you feel emotionally when, you, when you're actually lighting it on fire? You kind of feel good. You kind of feel good. You're just letting go of it. You're accepting that it's no good. You're accepting failure. I don't think failure is a bad thing. I think failure is a good thing. 
I, I believe in failing, failing often and, and failing fast. Um, that that you learn often more from your failures than you do from your successes. And so I would read the pages of these books, and I just knew they were no good. And so what am I going to do with them? Am I going to keep them in my apartment so I see them? Am I going to show them to my friends? Am I going to try to do something with them? Why bother? They're garbage. So, so, so treat them like garbage. And, but also for me, almost symbolically, throwing them into a river or lighting them on fire was me acknowledging that it was shit and that you had to, that I had to start over. And then what would be your process of starting over? Like would next day you have a brand new idea or would you just start writing or would you read more to get inspired? Uh, I wouldn't probably normally start every again. I'd wait until I felt like I had a book inside me. And once I, I felt like I had a book inside me, I'd start. That's what I still do. I, um, when I have a book inside me, I write a book. And so when I don't, I don't. When when you when you started A Million Little Pieces, it's it's... It's at that point you were, I guess, in your early thirties. You obviously took the most intense moment of your life up to that point, like where you're you're hitting bottom as an addict and going to rehab. That almost, in retrospect, becomes like the obvious point to start a book. But like, how did it feel at that moment? So I wrote that book in Venice, California, um, and I wrote the first forty pages of it in about an 18 hour long single sitting and I remember I sat down and I wrote the first line um, I wake to the drone of an airplane engine and the feeling of something warm dripping down my chin I think that's the first line it's something like that and I I just kept going and maybe three or four pages in I knew like I think I found it like the voice just felt. I think I figured out. Because um, it is a very unique voice. Like you could pick that up and say, ah, James Fry wrote this. Thank you. Um, I, I just felt like I finally found it. You know, 10 years in, I found it. And how long did it take you to write the book? About a year. Um, I wrote it in 2000, early, late 2000 and early 2001. Took about a year. Um, I, I remember when I finished it, when I typed the last word, it was, I was in Venice and it was probably four in the morning and I typed the last word and it was, you know, the early, earlier days of computers. So I had a desktop, one of those Macs that used to be like that big that sat on the floor and I typed the last words, I typed with two fingers and I looked at it and I just burst into tears and I just sat alone middle of the night by myself and cried for probably a half an hour just because I felt like I finally wrote a book that I didn't have to throw away, that I didn't have to burn. And so so according to what you were saying before, you, you, you that's another way of saying you finally wrote a book that was A, inspired but different enough from your inspirations and one that you felt could change the world or change, your, you know, move people. How did you get... How did you get that sense? How you know? So writers listening to this, they want to know how they could judge their own pieces. I always say when I when what I'm doing makes me nervous, when what I'm doing scares me, when what I'm doing actually makes me feel something as I'm doing it, then I know I'm doing it right. What were you scared of? 
while I was writing that book. Or when you finished it. Um, it's more during the actual process of the writing. Like it was scary making making myself as vulnerable as I did, making myself look like a piece of shit, which I was. I was scared of all the um, formal, structural, grammatical, punctuation rules I rejected. Um, at the same time, it built my confidence in a way that nothing else could, right? When, when you reject everything and you learn that you can reject everything and, and still be doing something cool that can be successful and can work, it it emboldens you to keep rejecting things, to defy conventions, to fuck the rules, to not give a shit how I'm supposed to do something. There there's a there's a thing in this book where I say I talk about the process of writing. And I remember at a certain point I showed a friend of mine who had had a master's from NYU in creative writing about 200 pages of a million little pieces. And he read it and he called me and he was like, dude, it's really good, but I got to tell you, this would get destroyed in my creative writing workshop. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, there's no grammar. There's no punctuation. It's full of profanity. It's, it's, it's brutal and visceral and kind of great, but there's also no way anybody will publish this. It would just get destroyed. And when we hung up that call, I thought to myself, fuck yeah. That's exactly the reaction that I hope to get from this dude. Like, um, that book wasn't written to be polite. It wasn't written to uh, make me a part of the literati. It wasn't written to make me friends. It, it was written to polarize and divide. It was written to either break your heart or enrage you. Um, it was written to burn the world down. And you know, um, it's not as if no author in the past had stretched convention, like Kurt Vonnegut obviously stretched convention in lots of different ways. Thomas Pynchon, David Foster Wallace, all these guys had stretched different conventions, whether it was grammar or style or whatever. Um, but yours, you, you stretch it in such a way that it's, you're still telling a very tight story. Like it's not necessarily the case when I read a Thomas Pynchon novel that I'm reading a, a tight story or Kurt Vonnegut is also, you know, breaking down various walls, but he's not necessarily telling always a tight story. Million Little Pieces is still from beginning to end a, a story. There's the arc of the hero in there. Why, why you break all those conventions? Yeah, I mean, I, I dig those dudes. I knew Vonnegut before he passed away. He was an amazing and cool and weird guy. I had dinner with, with him about a, a week before he died. Um, and I was like, what are you up to these days, man? He's like, just watching Law and Order. And I was like, what do you mean you're just watching Law and Order? He's like, I don't want to work anymore. And I figured out that there's a Law and Order on every hour of every day. <laughs> and I can go to my office and just hang out and watch Law and Order. And I just sort of laughed. It was completely unexpected and so completely Kurt Vonnegut in a very odd way that he ended up just loving Law and Order. Um, you know, I, I, I dig those dudes. 
they definitely stretched convention and 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 broke new ground in how books can be written and and how stories can be told. But I also love the economy of Hemingway. I love the economy of Cormac McCarthy. I love mm-hmm. a story. I I loved some of my favorite books are Dumas. Right? Have you ever read The Count of Monte yeah. Cristo or The Three Musketeers? Didn't read that. Oh, it's so good. It's just an incredible, incredibly fun, entertaining story. Um, while I can appreciate James Joyce, I didn't enjoy reading it. Um, the books that I love most are books that once I start reading them, I don't want to stop. I, I want to stay up until I literally fall asleep with the book. And when I wake up, I want to go back to it. And so for me, part of writing books was trying to do that too. With The Million Little Pieces, very specifically, one of the things I was trying to do in it was make you addicted to it, was the the best way to make you understand what it feels like to be addicted is to make you addicted to what I wrote. And in the process of trying to figure that out, I learned a lot of things that I have used continuously throughout my writing career, economy, efficiency, simplicity, little things like removing paragraph indentations, right? Not a book I've ever written has paragraph indentations in it. And I remember... It gives us like breathless quality then. Well, it also, there is, when your eye has to move that little space, it slows you down. It slows your brain down. It slows the reading process down. Um, that speed was important. There's a certain urgency and um, to addiction. You're always needing something. You're always trying to find it. You always are chasing it. And I tried to figure out ways to make you feel that as you read. And, and efficiency and speed were part of it, not just in how the writing is composed, how, it, how it's laid out, but also how the story's told. Um, The greatest stories are are all about confrontations, right? Drama is born out of conflict. Um, so every page of that book has conflict. Every page of that book has drama continuously pounding you, making you move forward very, very quickly as fast as you can go and pounding you all the way with, with conflict resolution, conflict resolution. Some would happen within a single page. Some would take place over multiple pages, some over multiple chapters, and some of those conflict arcs over the the whole course of the book, but assault you with not just the words and how, like I said, how they were composed and how they're laid out, but also with the story. Well, because it seems like, like in A Million Little Pieces, you have the main character, but you also have all the other inhabitants of the rehab facility who have their own stories and he's observing them too and they go go through their own traumas and dramas and you get to tell those stories as well well that's part of being in rehab man like you tell your shit but you listen to other people's shit too and and getting better in that environment is as much about other people as it is yourself and they had great stories so it's funny because until until you just said that i didn't make the connection as much between uh, a million little pieces, and so so, just to fast forward, then you wrote my friend Leonard about a character who was your best friend in, in a million little pieces. But then you wrote uh, Bright Shining Morning about these interweaving stories of all these characters in LA, completely different characters in LA from 
celebrities to homeless to people just arriving. And it's just brilliant how you kind of capture the voices of all these disparate people. Um, it's it's kind of like, I don't know, the book defines L.A. in some way. Uh, but now I see the connection between that and A Million Little Pieces. It's almost as if they're all addicted to their own stories in in that book. Yeah. When I sat down to write Bryce Shane Morning, I, I, I wanted, like, there are books written about other cities, right? There are a bunch of books about New York. A bunch of books about Paris and London, Tokyo, um, Berlin. Nobody had ever written a big, bold book about Los Angeles that was actually the central character was the city. Um, and I love LA. I lived there for a long time. I'm still there a huge amount. Um, and I thought the city was worthy of the sort of attention other places got. And And if you think about earlier, we were talking about how do you figure out architecture or I called it architecture and story. How do you decide how to structure a book in order to tell the most effective story? And in the case of that book, the central character is this city that's vast and incredibly diverse. And while it is incredibly diverse, it's segmented diversity, right? The, the communities don't often interact with each other. It's a, a, a city um, that was built on dreams. Um, that was built on the idea that you can move there and be whoever and whatever you want. Um, and that there is a constant flow of people in and out of it chasing that dream. And that most of those people's dreams don't ever come true. Um, so in thinking about how to write about that, the only way to do it would be to do it without a central protagonist, to do it with multiple protagonists, to do it with hundreds of characters, to to design the architecture of the book to mimic the architecture of the city. Given all the characters and all the, the storytelling involved, there was no outlining there? No. I would and, just write what I want, just by instinct, by feel as I went. And and of course, what was great too is you have these interludes where you tell these kind of odd stories about the city itself to sort of express again like how just almost fabricated and constructed the city is. So there's a history of Los Angeles in the book, and there's also all sorts of lists of facts and um, all sorts of weird statistics. Um, and it's all presented as if it's real, but within the construct of a novel. And so some of it's not real. Like probably oh, I didn't know that. 60% of it is act, action. What? It wasn't real? No, it wasn't real. I mean, it was a deliberate thing. My favorite line of any book I've ever written is the first line of Bright Shiny Morning where it just says nothing in this book is, nothing in this book should, con should be considered accurate, factual or accurate, something like that. Um, I know it's just like me lifting my middle finger and being like, okay, you got mad at me because I blended fact and fiction and... Um, well, I'm going to fucking do it again. And I'm going to do it in a way that you can't even figure out what I did. And and it seems like, I mean, that's, I first off, I highly recommend all your books, but that book is just an amazing book of storytelling. Have you ever thought about, I know with A Million Little Pieces, the movie was just in the Toronto Film Festival. It's coming out. It's from the director of Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, hopefully it'll be a big hit. Uh, but have you thought about a movie with Bright Shiny Morning? We've thought about it. We thought about turning it into a television show. It's there are too many characters to 
make a movie of it. It's too big a book. There's too much story in it. We may pull a couple sections out of it and make movies with certain parts of it. I'm actually happy if it just is a book. And, and by the way, though, just what you just said now, we'll get into in a little bit, but you're prolific in so many other ways other than as a writer, a writer now has to think almost in multimedia, almost has to think as a businessman, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, and then I would say I've read this, I'm probably insane for saying this, but I've read your next book, Final Testament of the Holy Bible. I've probably read that over a dozen times. Like I wow. love that book Thank you. so much. Thank you. That's the best book I wrote. Um, it's the least known in America and probably the best known outside of America. Um, that makes me happy. I, and I didn't even know that was your favorite book. I, that's why I was ever saying it. <laughs> no, that's my favorite book. Um, you know, it's a book about the coming of the Messiah, right? It, it's, a, it's, it's the kind of book anyone who's creative has probably thought, huh, what if I do this? A modern day Messiah or Jesus or not come back, what would it be like? And you did it and you pull it off perfectly. Thank you. And it's just so amazing from how he's raised to the accident to everything that happens after that. And you, anyway, I won't, I won't, I won't. See, that actually is, pro is getting turned into a mini series. Oh, really? Yeah, with uh, a French actress um, who's also a, a filmmaker and a director, Melanie Laurent, is going to direct it. And um, a company called Make Ready, who um, is a great LA production company, is going to make it. Um, I'm stoked. I'm writing it. It'll be an eight-part miniseries about the coming of the Messiah, which I think is particularly appropriate given the age we're in, um, where a large portion of America believes that the Messiah is going to arrive any day. Um, and it's also, of course, um, very polarizing, right? Because you, I, you, you, you're going to have very strong opinions about who this person is, and we're living in a society now that's completely divided in half due to polarization. And I also think we're living in a time where, where a lot of the most deeply religious people would absolutely like, if you believe in Christ, right? Um, he was killed by people who were praying for his arrival, who did not believe he was the Messiah, who did not believe in the message he brought. And, and Christ's message was very simple, um, which is love thy neighbor as you love thyself. Um, and if a guy like that arrived today, most of the people who spend their time praying for him would fucking kill him because he wouldn't say gays are bad and that people who don't believe what you believe are bad and that the poor should be ignored and that wars are good. He would say the fucking opposite of all of that. He would say love is love and, and however you love is cool and, and they would kill him. And you know, the, the, the book is structured in some ways similar to Bright Shiny Morning in that you have a lot of characters telling their stories, but also it's structured biblically as if each character is like the book of whoever. And, and, and at the same time, uh, you know, you like I think one of the reasons why I enjoy the book so much is not only the storytelling, but it's actually quite an inspirational book. Like this guy has a message, you have a message in the book. And considering what you call in Katerina, what you call your rage, which you that which comes out in Katerina, comes out in a million little pieces, comes out in other things you've written, 
So how did you kind of, how did it feel sort of tapping into a different sort of energy than, than just pure rage? How did it feel sort of tapping into a different sort of energy than, than just pure rage? Uh, the Final Testament was by far the hardest book I wrote to write. Um, I have a way I write, which we sort of discussed earlier, and I, I abandoned it for that book. What do you um, mean? Because it's not written in the normal style. If you read it, each chapter is written in a totally different voice, in the voice of the character. Um, and none of them are the way I write in A Million Little Pieces or My Friend Leonard or Bright Shiny Morning or Katerina. They're totally different from that. Mm. Um, I've always, my whole life, thought a lot about God. And, and I have pretty fluid beliefs where sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. Um, but I have always wanted to. Um, and I had, uh, I had a son who died in 2008. And when he was in the hospital and sick, and I knew he was gonna die, there was always a period of the day where the doctors would have to, a couple times during the day, the doctors would have to come by and they would ask us to leave the room. And it was on the Upper East Side in New York. And when that happened, I would just go wander around and I would walk usually into religious institutions. Um, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist. I went into all of them. And I, I would ask God to help me. And I would get on my knees and say, let my son live and take me. Let him live, just fucking take me. Give me, or, or give me some sign that there's a reason that this is fucking happening, something. And I came out of that experience um, thinking a lot about if there were a God, who would I want that God to be? Like, who's a God I could worship? Because I came out of that experience, despite having gone to all these places, not believing. So what could I believe in? Um, I also thought about it and what could, what, what could be the most ambitious, most audacious book I could possibly write, which would be the final, the third book of the Bible. Um, as I wrote it, I did a huge amount of research. Um, I had a, a Jesuit priest as an advisor. I had an evangelical minister as an advisor and my primary advisor, and it was uh, an Orthodox rabbi who lives not far from here, Rabbi Adam Mintz, who's one of the greatest humans I've ever met and who became a very, very dear friend. Um, was the rabbi in the, in the book uh, based on that, on him? No. Rabbi Mintz is um, one of the funniest, happiest, most energetic people I've ever met. Um, he's, as we sit and talk to each other, it's always funny because he's very animated and he talks very quickly and he's got this loud voice and I sort of sit here and mumble. Um, but he's an awesome human being. And the book is religiously correct. It's, it's um, theoretically correct. It's, uh, what, what do you mean by theoretically correct? Like what's a, what's a piece that, what does it mean theoretically? So there are certain, for, for someone to be uh, recognized or acknowledges Messiah 
within the Jewish faith, there are certain requirements you have to fulfill. Um, you have to be born on the day the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. They don't know what that day is, but they, there, there are three days within that that will be recognized. You have to be Davidic, which is descended from the line of David. Um, you have to have been born circumcised, which Moses, Aaron, Saul, and Jesus, and David all were. Um, you have to fulfill these requirements or you're, you, you won't even be considered a potential messiah. Um, that's what I mean by religiously correct. It, it, it fulfilled every aspect of the prophecies. So, um, so and and the simple things in it, like um, the prayers that are said before certain types of dinners, um, the prayers that are said in certain types of religious ceremonies. Those were all correct. Because um, then you even had to kind of create you know, almost mock religion-like situations like the people underground. You had to sort of recreate a belief system that works. Uh, I didn't have to recreate one. I just had to apply the one that Christ says in the Gospels is the one we should live by, which is love thy neighbor. It's super fucking simple. Um, and then when you finish that, did it feel differently than finishing, you know, Million Little Pieces? Yeah, I mean, I uh, were you inspired by the book? Final Testament was an exercise of the mind, right? It, it was really a book of the mind. It was intellectually challenging, and and it was born of my mind. A million little pieces. My friend Leonard, Bright Shine Morning, and absolutely Katerina are born of my heart, and they're more your story. They're a reflection of my soul. Um, of what I feel and what I think and how I've lived and what I've done or not done. So with with Katerina, which again is like, you know, it sort of ends almost a little bit before a million little pieces starts, but it's it's like almost, it's kind of this coming of age novel, or it is a coming of age novel where you're you go to France to to find yourself. There's this um, comparison with how your life is in 2017 which, you know, you're a little bored with kind of, not bored, but maybe almost angry at the the Hollywood writing lifestyle as compared to the kind of heroic writing lifestyle you wanted to emulate in the early 90s where the main character spends most of his time. And there's definitely that that rage, but it also reminds me of, and I don't know if this was an influence, but it reminds me of This Side of Paradise by Fitzgerald. So his coming of age novel where at different points he kind of lifts lists the novels he's reading and you know has these experiences and you kind of do the same thing in this you sort of say what your influences are throughout as you're building internally as a writer so i wonder if that was yeah fitzgerald does it uh thomas wolf did it henry miller did it it was it, it used jack kerouac did it um it was a thing you would you would acknowledge almost acknowledge your heroes as you were writing about yourself or writing a book about becoming a writer. Um, and each of the people I just mentioned did that. Um, yeah, Katerina Katerin is a, a, a half of it, about three quarters of it takes place in 1992 and three in Paris. You know, when I was 21, I ran off to France to be a famous writer. I didn't know anybody, I didn't speak French. Didn't and you were pretty friends. cocky about you were gonna be a famous writer. Yeah, I was pretty cocky about it. Um, 
Which is the right or the character, the, char- the right of a twenty-one-year-old, right? The character of it, um, the character in it was was cocky. To take that leap of faith, you have to have a certain amount of confidence and a certain amount of um, insanity, right? Because you you have to be able to, as you write these books that you throw into the river or set on fire, you have to have enough confidence to be able to say, "Okay, I'm going to get there." And it's hard to have that confidence. You have to have a combination of desire, confidence, persistence, resilience. There's a lot of skills that are nuanced to to keep on going. Yeah, I always believed if I sat there long enough, I'll give my parents credit for this. My parents always told me as a kid, even though I was a total fuck up disaster of a kid, if you work hard enough, you can make any dream you have come true. And I believed from the day I started that if I sat at a desk in front of a machine long enough that I would figure out how to do what I wanted to do. So what so given that your your parents were supportive like that, A, why were you a fuck up as a kid? And B, I feel like writing sometimes plugs an insecurity. Like you can't express who you are. So maybe people will see who you are if they read a famous book by you. Where where do you think the rage, the fucked upness the insecurity kind of comes from that got you going? I mean, there are theories about where rage comes from. Was it an early childhood experience? Was I born with it? I don't know. I don't give a fuck. Um, I know as a kid, I always liked the bad guys, right? Um, I, I, I When wrestling was big in the 80s as a kid, I always rooted for the heel. Um, I thought... Uh, outlaws were cool and criminals were cool and and people who got in trouble were cool. Um, I never wanted to be the president of the United States. I would have much rather been Al fucking Compote, right? Um, I don't know why that is. It was just how it how it was. I started using drugs and alcohol pretty early. I started doing that because I always felt shit that I didn't understand and that hurt me. And I learned that if I used drugs and drank that... Um, they would make those feelings go away for a little while. What do you mean you felt, what, what did you feel that you didn't understand? As a kid, um, why I was so angry, why I felt alone, why I was insecure. Um, I think every everybody feels those things. It's just how do you deal with them? How deeply do you feel them? I don't know how deeply anybody else feels them. I know for me, they were confusing and I didn't like them. I didn't like being angry and drinking made it go away. The problem is once the alcohol or the drugs wear off, they come back and they're stronger. And and um, the chemicals are both a sedative to them and also an accelerant to them. So so then, like fast forwarding to two thousand eight, it's certainly tragic when you know the death of a a child. Do you do you feel like with final testament of the Holy Bible? you went in a different direction of channeling that that pain like going towards something that can inspire you i don't i, I don't know if i i think of anything quite like that um, it's always interesting to hear people talk about books i've read cuz i don't often think about them in the ways people think you would when i'm writing them um, i once was in france for a literary festival in lyon it's every two years, the International Symposium of the Novel. It's really fancy. Um, and while I was there, I spent a day with four 
French masters and PhD students who were writing their dissertations on me, right? Huh. And, I, and I said, you can ask me anything you want. And they would ask me these questions about the books I'd written, very detailed. Well, was your motivation this? And was your influence this? And, and at a certain point, I was like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like, I just sit down. I don't know how I do what I do. Well, I just sit there and do it. Let, let, let me ask in a more tangential way, because this is, this is another issue. Often when, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but in such a tragedy, how did you keep your marriage together? Because I imagine it must have been very hard at that moment. We had another child who needed her parents and we needed each other. Um, there's nobody I trust or love more in the world than my wife. And I think I needed her to get through it and she needed me to get through it. We knew the statistic that, I don't know exactly what it was, I don't know it anymore, but 80% of the couples who have a child die end up splitting up. Um, we didn't blame each other for anything. There wasn't anything we could have done. Um, it was a, a, a very shitty situation and we needed each other to get through it. And we needed to be parents to our other child. Hmm. And f the way I sort of worked it out emotionally for myself, maybe is for writing that book. I don't know. Um, I know I was compelled to write it after that happened. And so, and then it's been... I mean, that book, I remember, that book is about suffering. I remember when I sat down with Rabbi Mint, um, one of the first times he said, you know, what the book ultimately has to be about and what both books of the Bible are about are suffering. The, those books are about pain and about how God can redeem us and save us from our pain. Well, and, it, and it's interesting relating to your, your other books, like in a... In a you know, a million little pieces. The main character uh, is having trouble coming to grips with sort of the AA dictates of you know find your higher power. So there's like this battle of like what is God in his his mind. And you can argue the dreams of you even refer to this in Katerina that all all your books really are about God to some extent. Um, this is the one where you specifically make it, but but about God. But you're right, everybody's suffering nobody nobody gets a break ever and <laughs> in, in that but now between when that came out 2011 and now this book katarina comes out in 2018 um and and a little bit before then you went in a almost completely different direction like you you even though you've sold millions of copies of your books and you're probably doing well you also started a production company and it was almost like a uh warholian factory type of setup where you know you would come it was up very much a warholian War, warholian factory type of setting that right. was uh, uh, entirely the inspiration for it and you wrote the, this best-selling children's series like paranormal young adult series we wrote a bunch of them we had that company produced 35 new york times bestsellers yeah and i, I don't think most people know that about you i mean i remember back in 2010 with the uh, original articles just describing it but uh uh Maybe describe how how that started. Like, so uh, it was a totally different tangent. I talk a lot about Kater in Katarina about art and about how most of how I learned how to write books was through looking at art. 
and how if I have inspirations, the greatest inspirations to me are are, are, are works of art and are artists, not necessarily writers. And so I had written four books at that point. Um, and I was tired and I was burnt and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. Every dream I had as a book writer had come true. Um, having this background in art and a certain knowledge of art, I, I have written the text to a lot of art books, so a lot of the most famous artists in the world. Um, I've done a bunch, I've done books with Richard Prince and Ed Ruscha and Gregory Crutzen and Rachel Feinstein and um, all kinds of people um, with the Guggenheim and the Flag Art Foundation and Gagosian. Um, and I was writing the text for a book uh, of Damien Hirst's. And I went over to London to see Damien and he took me to his art production facility, which is in a little town, maybe two hours from London called Stroud. And it's in a old decommissioned Air Force base. And I was walking around there with him and in each of these different airplane hangers, a different type of art is made. So in one paintings and another prints and another sculpture and another, the formaldehyde sculpture. Um, and I was fascinated by it. And it was, you know, the, the Renaissance studio model, which has been used in the production of art since the Renaissance, um, most notably in recent times by Warhol or Takashi Murakami or Jeff Koons. And, used by Damien at, on an enormous scale, on a scale un, unprecedented. And as I was walking around there with him, um, the iPad was also about to first come out and I had read a lot about it. Um, I started thinking about how he made art and how an iPad was going to function. And, and what I thought was cool about an iPad is you can turn the thing on and you can read a book watch the movie of that book, play the video game tied to that book, and go to the website and buy shit merch related to it. Um, and I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Damien, and I was like, well, why not just start a, a, a company that does what Damien does, but with stories, where I come up with the ideas of stories and other people who work with me execute those ideas out under my supervision. And thinking about the iPad, all of those stories are designed to be books that can be made into movies or television shows, that can be made into video games, that can be turned into merch. So how do you make the switch from, I, I hate to describe your work as literary, but it's a different type of fiction than young adult paranormal. Like how did you know how did you start thinking, okay, this would be a good idea, a bunch of aliens in space, you know, from different planets? It's just storytelling, right? Um, like, what, like, you, like, there's one example where you show someone, you know, a three-page structure. Like, what's, what, what's the structure of a good young adult story that's I mean, going to attract it's, attention? It's three acts. It has a bit beginning, middle, and end. Um, in, some, um, in some cases, it follows the hero cycle. Um, in other cases, it's romance. Um, but um, they ha there are tropes, certainly, in, in young adult fiction. Um, there's often uh, love triangles. Um, the people have extraordinary talents or abilities. Um, it was fun. I came up with the idea for I Am Number Four, right? Like, 
a group of alien kids stuck on Earth are being hunted down and killed one by one. The first three have been killed. Let's tell the story of the fourth as he is being hunted down. Um, and that was that was a number one bestseller, right? It's a number one bestseller. Um, Spielberg and Michael Bay produced it as a film. Uh, DreamWorks and Disney released it. It was fun. It was cool. It worked. The model worked. So I just kept doing it for a while. Um, and you and you were even like you were a producer on American Gothic. Like it kind of you lived a full Hollywood life at at some point. Yeah, we produced a few movies. We produced a couple television series. We produced a bunch of pilots. It was fun. We published two hundred and twenty five books. Two hundred twenty five books. Yeah, and just. You would recruit writers out of these MFA programs or from wherever? No, it was always kind of bullshit that we recruited writers out of MFA programs. I didn't want writers out of MFA programs. I just wanted professional writers, usually usually writers in their late 20s to mid-30s who had written books, who knew how to write a book, who could work on a deadline, who could meet deadlines, who were professionals. I didn't want... Um, an MFA kid who was looking to win a Pulitzer Prize and thought what we were doing was dumb. Mm. I wanted a professional writer who understood that this was a job and that we were creating a product that was designed to sell and that we had deadlines and we had partners whose expectations we expected to meet. Um, it was run as a business. It was a creative business. It was a fun business, but it was a business. I had investors. I had a hedge fund, owned 10% of that company. Um, I had a couple other investors. It was a business, and it was run as a business, designed to be efficient. Um, and can we talk? It's where you recently sold it. I sold it. Yep. Um, I'm still. I still. I still do it. Um, I sold it to a, a YouTuber influence network um, called Three Black Dot in America, based in LA, which is owned by another larger YouTube influencer network called Webedia in France. And what does a YouTube influencer network mean? Do they find advertisers for influencers or? Yeah, we, we work with influencers and help them build businesses out of their YouTube channels. We bring advertisers to them. We um, help them um, manage every aspect of their professional life. And the idea is that, um, let's say you're a very popular gaming influencer, right? Um, you play somebody else's video game, you make videos of yourself playing somebody else's video game and you put it up and you're essentially providing marketing for whosoever game you're playing. Well, our theory is we should be making the games with the influencers. Hmm. Um, so instead of promoting someone else's product, let them promote a product that we make together and that we own together. Um, and we're gonna do that with you know video games, uh, graphic novels, traditional novels, um, and filmed entertainment of a variety of types, films, television shows, but also things designed to live on YouTube. And so after doing this for many years and obviously being like hugely successful at it, what, what made you suddenly wake up and say, okay, finally I'm going to write that coming-of-age novel that usually novelists write first, but and now I'm going to write it after this whole career? Um, so this book came about about, probably a year and a half, two years ago, um, I was just depressed. I, I felt awful. And, and despite whatever success I had and despite having a family I loved and friends I loved and what from the out 
side is a great life. I was just fucking depressed and I just wanted to die. And and I would wake up every day and get in my car and think about driving it into a tree. And I would climb into bed at night and I would think about taking a whole bottle of Tylenol PM and never waking up. And I was just fucking depressed. Um, I have this therapist um, who I have, a, I think, a pretty unconventional relationship with. I've, I've, I, I don't see him regularly. I call him when I feel like I need to talk to him, which sometimes is twice a month and sometimes once a year. Um, and the first time I saw him, I said, listen, I'm not here to talk to a fucking wall. Like, I expect this to be a conversation. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your opinion. And I want your advice. Um, and so I was depressed. And I called him. And I told him basically what I just told you. I wake up every day and I want to fucking die. And he sort of laughed. And he said, well, I have a couple questions for you. I said, what? He goes, "What? do you have your earrings in? And I don't know if you can see. I have six earrings, right? Um, and I was like, no, I don't. He was like, what kind of clothes are you wearing right now? And I said, oh, I'm wearing khakis and a Izod polo shirt. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm at my office. And he said, the office where you write or the office where you run your company? And I was like, the office where I run my company. And he's like, and how's Connecticut? I was like, it's good. He's like, that big house yours, it's okay? I was like, yeah. He was like, the reason you want to fucking die is because you forgot who the fuck you are and you miss who you are. He said, go home and put your earrings back in and take off that polo and put on a t-shirt and stop going to the office of the company and go to the office where you write and write a fucking book. Um, he said, the version of you I knew would make fun of the version of you that exists today. Um, and that's the version you make fun of in Katerina. Yeah. Um, and and the, in the 1992 version of you, you're making fun of the people going in that direction. And the 2017 version of you, you're having the conversation you just had. Yeah. Um, he said, you, 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 you can run a business, but still be yourself, right? He said, somewhere you got lost um, and you need to find yourself. And part of finding myself was writing a book. He said, you should be writing because it's what makes you happy. And he's right. You know, people talk about books and um, part of the book, of, of, of making a book is the release of it and having people read it and doing things like this. Um, the other part is the act of writing it, right? I, I find the greatest joy in the act of writing it. I'm at my happiest in life um, when I'm alone in a room and there's a blank screen in front of me and my job that day is to fill it the fuck up. It makes me deeply happy. It, it's very satisfying. It, it, it's fun. Um, and I hadn't done it in years and I'd missed it. And he was right. I needed to go back to that and I needed to go back to who I was or who I am that allows me to do that. And um, Do you after, think it worked? Yeah. After that conversation, like I followed his advice and I sat down a few days later um, I actually wrote the book in the office of the company. So I went to the people who work at the company. And I was like, listen, it might get a little weird around here for a while. Um, I'm going to probably play music really loud. You might hear me yelling. You'll probably hear me talking to myself a lot. Um, 
just ignore it. And they all sort of laughed and, and I started writing the book and it felt good. It felt right. It made me happy. And so I just kept doing it um, until it was done. It was a joy to write. It, it brought me great satisfaction. I'm very happy it's out in the world now and people can read it and decide for themselves whether they dig it or not. But it, it's a huge win for me just doing it. Well, it's it's a great book. Not only, I mean, there's many reasons why it's a great book. It's a, just by itself, it's a great story. It's your it's your style. It's back to the the James Frey I I was always reading, and um, and it's great as a also a prequel to understanding a little bit more the background of a million little pieces. Um, plus, in there, I think it's like a guide to writing. Like you talk so much about writing in the book, it really gives a sense of your philosophy of writing and, and how you build your craft, which I appreciated in the book. Yeah, I wanted to write a book that was about writing books. Part of it is just about that, right? Um, I always think that's kind of cool when I, when I and, and there's a tradition of it. Again, a lot of these people I've mentioned before, Henry Miller and Jack Kerouac, all talked about writing books or wrote books about writing books. Um, and, and, you know, what I'm wondering is, and you, you, you know, you wanted to be you mentioned in the book, the, the, there's one or two writers of each generation. You want to be a writer of, of your generation. It does sort of feel like, like after you, can you think of any other, let's call it a novel, as controversial as Million Little Pieces? No, I don't think there's been one probably since. I don't know if kids want to be novelists anymore, right? I, I don't think, I, I feel like there isn't, a tradition of the novelist as hero the way there was, let's say, for a Kerouac or a Hemingway or a Norman Mailer or a Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, yeah, know. when I grew up, I, I idolized everybody you meant, you just mentioned. I wanted to be one of those guys, and I'm not sure kids want to be us anymore. Brett Ellis is a good friend of mine, and we often talk about the death of literature, the death, and, the death of the novel, that um, part of it is... is that books have become boring that in today's world if you take a risk you will get so hammered for it by the media and by social media that people aren't willing to take risks when they create novels when they when they write books that um and, and Brett Ellis is a great example of like someone who like less than zero when it came out it's like every word punched you in the face like every, it was it was an intense style and, and, and psycho is one of the great American yeah. novels ever written. Also very controversial. Also like that one was banned in a lot of places. Um, but that, you know, literature has become sanitized. That that if you if you try to take the risks that we that people used to be encouraged to take, you get hammered for them. I think part of it is the rise of the culture of writing schools, right? Um, none of the writers you mentioned before went to writing school. They they learned the way I learned, which is you sit in a room alone and you figure it the fuck out. Now most people who go to writer or who want to be novelists go off to master's program. So you have to get an uh, you know high level undergraduate degree. Then you have to go to a high level graduate writing program to get your MFA. And while you're at your MFA program, you get workshopped by other people trying to do the same thing as you and you're told what is acceptable and what's not acceptable and what rules you have to follow and what rules you don't have to follow and how to use grammar and how to use punctuation 
and and the individuality of writing books has been diminished in my opinion well and, and i think you you said it best in one of one of the interviews that i read somewhere where if you want to be a writer sit down for 10 hours a day and write you know 600 polished words and do that for years yeah sit in a fucking room and and work it out and understand that you're going to be poor while you're doing it and you might be poor forever and when, when when you wrote a million little pieces and you were rejected by 19 publishers at any point during that process did you feel like oh gosh i wrote the book this is it why don't they see it for sure i thought that yeah but i didn't think okay i'm all done now I was just like, well, maybe I was wrong. I'll try it again. I'll, I'll, I'll do it again. And who, who sort of said, okay, no, this is, this is it. I mean, Nantalise bought the book. You know, I got rejected by seventeen publishers. Um, of the seventeen who rejected me, if I could have chose one before that process, I would have chosen Nan. You know, she was a a, a woman I admired deeply, who I thought published awesome books and she she did them in beautiful ways and so somehow i ended up with the publisher i would have wanted to have ended up at the beginning anyway um you know i didn't get paid much for that i didn't care i was just incredibly happy it was coming out and and um and i believed it, it had a chance to burn the world down and it did and and so given given that kind of novelist as hero doesn't exist as much, but YouTuber as hero is Instagrammer as hero starts to exist among you know kids and young people now. Podcaster as hero. Podcaster as hero, maybe not as much of a hero, but uh, you sold your company to a YouTube influencer network. Obviously, you're thinking of of you know all, many alternative forms of media. Where do you think things like television and movies are going? Like traditional TV and movies? I think everything's moving towards platforms like Netflix and YouTube and on-demand consumption by consumers. Um, you know, I, I, I can't, I wish I could predict what the future looks like perfectly. Um, I know when I try to think about the future, I look at my children. I have a 13-year-old an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and I watch how they consume media and what they consume, and they don't care about a TV. Um, I remember a couple years ago, one Saturday morning, they were all sitting on a couch watching different things on either phones or iPads, and I was like, don't any of you want to go sit in the other room in front of that giant fucking TV we have and watch in there? And they they were like, why? Why? It's, it's funny. You know, sometimes my kids, they will watch the big screen, but they'll watch, they're, they'll watch Friends. They, they actually love 90s My daughter sitcoms. loves Friends and The Office. She's yeah, they, recently they, they, gotten, they just watch The Office. She's recently, recently gotten into the old Beverly Hills 90121. Classic. 90210. Um, but most of the media they consume is on platforms like Instagram and YouTube and Netflix and Hulu. And um, how do you think storytelling will change in those formats? 
like you look at the popular YouTube star stars, they're not there's not necessarily an arc of a story there. It's not like Star Wars is happening there. No, but I think you know more traditional long form storytelling can exist along YouTube mm-hmm. storytelling. YouTube something you watch on your phone when you have ten minutes, right? Um, Netflix produces a ton of long form television content that twenty years ago would have been on TV. But it maybe just that- allows people to consume it at at their own leisure at their own pace in whatever environment they choose to consume it in. I wonder if that model will decrease because simply because it's almost like uh, the Cold War between Amazon and, and Netflix. They're spending thirteen billion each on original programming this year. It's how many shows can people watch? It's going to make four hundred shows over the next year. There are a lot of people in the world, right? I mean, Netflix and Amazon are global platforms who are producing content to be consumed on every continent of the planet, yeah. as opposed to NBC, who makes things for America. Yeah. Um, I think they're also trying to build a library that can exist for long periods of time and can be monetized and exploited in a variety of ways. Um, certainly traditional television networks and film studios do that as well. But the game will be, where where this all goes will be determined ultimately by the consumer, right? The end consumer decides how they want to consume their media. And when I think about the future, all I do is watch my children and they consume most of their media on phones and tablets. And I don't believe that... Uh, there's going to be a, be a period of time when they go back to watching television. You think about college kids, right? I know when I was in college and probably when you were in college, you would often hang out in whosoever room had the best TV, right? You would go to the dude's room who had the biggest, best fucking television. Um, they don't do that anymore. They don't sit around together and watch TV shows on a big screen, what do they do? <laughs> they watch iPads. They watch stuff in bed on their computer. They watch things on their phones. Does that discourage you as a, a novelist? Will you write another novel? I'll write another novel because I love doing it um, and because it makes me happy and because I think there are people who still consume novels. Um, but as I think about what I do day to day in the business that I work for, I have to think about the future and we're trying to produce a lot of content that is designed to exist on digital platforms, either initially and originally or um, permanently. And so one one final question, and I just want to say Katerina's great book. I recommend not only this, but read all the books we, we discussed there. Again, I love the Final Testament of the Holy Bible. Million Little Pieces, My Friend Leonard, Bright Shiny Morning, and now Katerina. You've created like an incredible body of work. When you're writing a book like this or any of your books, and you're thinking, I want to, you know, you use the phrase a lot in Katerina, you want to burn the world down. Do you look at something and you're reading it to yourself out loud? Do you think to yourself, did I, have I pushed the edge enough? Have I burned the world down? Like, do you sort of assess what you're writing? Like, did, did I take the chance? So I, I, I often talk about how I feel while I write the books, and I need to make what I'm writing feel, make myself feel something as I'm writing it. And when I'm really uncomfortable or when I'm scared that I'm going too far is when I know I'm doing the right thing. 
Like in the process of creation, I need to be scared to say what I'm saying. Like what scared you and Katerina? I mean, Katerina has a huge amount of sex in it, right? Um, and we live in a society that is sexually repressive where people don't write about sex that much, certainly don't talk about sex. Um, but the simple reality is everybody thinks about it all day or for certain portions of our day. And, it, and it's built into us genetically and biologically to seek it out. Um, but we, we don't talk about it. And the book is filled with a huge amount of sex written in um, a very frank way. Um, I thought it was fine to write about sex. When I was a 21-year-old in Paris who snorted cocaine almost every day, I also um, looked for people who wanted to snort cocaine with me and then fuck. Um, that definitely happens a lot in the book. Yeah, it happens a lot in the book. <laughs> you, you're, you're actually quite, quite prodigious in the, in the book uh, or prolific. Well, there were, we say. certainly compressed the, the periods of time in between. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, writing about sex um, very openly and unashamedly. Um, you know, writing about profanity, writing about failure. A lot of the book is about failure, about, about, um, about taking chances and, and having them blow the fuck up in your face. Um, When I write, I need to feel like I'm taking the chance. And it's all the answer when I'm writing is always the same. Might this get me in trouble? Might this offend someone? Um, and if the answer is yes, then I do it. All right. Well, James Frey, James Fry, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. This Thank has been, you. This has been, I think, like two years since we first texted. It's been longer than that, man. I was going to say, we've sort of been social media buddies for a long, long time Yeah, um, and talked about me coming on here for a long, long time. And um, I want to say I've enjoyed our social media friendship and I hope it continues forever. But I, I'm also stoked you had me on. I, uh, I I'm dig. stoked as well. And I and again, I'm a, a huge fan. You're, you're it's same, such great same to have one of my literary heroes on the podcast. Thank you. Well, you were one of the first podcasts I ever listened to, you and Mark Marin. Okay. Um, and uh, I still listen and, and it's an honor to be here. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Cool.